Today we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting with verse 22. Now, the last time we looked at this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus calming the storm, and today we're going to look at a teaching that really arises out of this miracle. And as always, Jesus was teaching. He wanted men and women to know how much God loved them and how much God offered them and the promises of God. And it's just amazing how God gave us free will and won't trample and violate that free will. But he so much desires us to be reconciled back to him. Because as by nature we are sinners. The world says mankind is basically good. That was a really big thought actually before World War I. And then the world saw World War I and World War II. And a lot of people started to rethink that man is basically good kind of idea. It brought out the worst in a lot of people. Uh, Last Sunday was very uplifting if you weren't here. Uh, Today, we're going to, the the chapter is going to morph. We're going to go from the miracles to this conversation that Jesus has with the crowd. Some of them are his 12 disciples. I believe there's a lot more disciples because we'll we'll catch that next Sunday as we finish up the chapter. Remember, he sent out the 70, the 72, two by two in Luke's gospel. The crowd also consists of just casual seekers. Wow, this is something interesting, this new rabbi, this new prophet that's come onto the scene, as well as religious leaders because the teaching actually ends in Capernaum and it ends in the synagogue. So you have this real hodgepodge of those that are are hearing his message. So we're going to jump in with verse 22. It says, On the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So the crowd see the miracles They investigate the whole boat situation. Well, we know that Jesus sent his disciples into the boat to go west across the Sea of Galilee, but he kind of went up to the mountain. Now Jesus is in Capernaum with the disciples. How did that happen? They have to deduce that another miracle took place. Jesus walked on the water, and he caught up to his disciples while they were in the storm. However, they decide to follow Jesus. Everything's going good right now, but wait till we get to the end of the chapter. But because many follow him for the wrong reasons, by the end of the chapter, most will leave him. The majority will leave him. Now, to our our Western success-oriented mind, we find that odd. But I think by the time we're done, it'll make a whole lot of sense. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So Jesus basically tells them point blank that they were following him because they got a free meal. I love that about Jesus. He he challenges us. He doesn't just allow us to kind of go through life and and uh, not see ourselves. He challenges us. And he points out really how myopic they were, how short-sighted. You know, 
Similarly to the woman at the well, they were focusing on physical water. Or she was focusing on physical water. And I love that portion of scripture in chapter 4. Today, we see these guys focus on physical bread, but the Lord wants to give them such, so much more. And I would just say this, don't shortchange yourself with just an uplifting sermon. Everybody wants to be uplifted on the Sunday morning, and when I study the scripture, I'm uplifted as well. But let's not start there, because God wants to give us so much more. He wants to give us eternal life. So consider that, if you don't know the Lord. Now in verse 26, we're going to do a little bit of a Greek study, because Greek is very expressive and a picturesque language, the Koine Greek spoken 2,000 years ago, um, a portion of classical Greek and others kind of mixed together. But the word for sea is sea in the English. However, in the Greek, there's like six or seven Greek words for the word sea. There, it's much more expressive, and we're going to see that come out. No pun intended. Uh, in verse 26, he says, you saw the signs, or you saw the miracles. Now, the word for just a casual observation, you know, I see uh, you guys sitting in the pews, the image goes past my lens, it, it spins it around, it turns it upside down, it inverts it, puts it on the back of my retina, it's picked up by the optic nerve, and it's sent into my brain, and there I got a digital image of what I'm seeing. It's just an image. That's blepo in the Greek. That word's not used here. The word that's used is ido. Now, this could have been translated, if we go back to 26, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw or you understood or considered the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What he's telling them is there's so much, so much greater things than just having your bellies filled. The miracles were right in front of them, and they had prophetic significance, but they were too carnal and fleshly to see the miracles. All they could think about was their hunger pains. Wow, Jesus multiplied the food. This is a great place. This is a great concert. Free food. And that's all they could think of at the time. And he's trying to challenge them on that. And I would say that today that God is still working in our decadent culture. But let's not mix, miss the prophetic signs either. Do you realize that when you open up the paper and you see what's going on in Syria, which is mentioned in end times prophecy, Russia's helping Syria, providing them with attack helicopters. It's mentioned in end time prophecy. The fact that northern, northern Egypt is being slowly taken over by radical Islam. North Africa is also mentioned in, in end times prophecy. Do you realize when you read the paper that we are being interjected in a period of time that has extreme prophetic significance? Don't miss the signs. Don't just come for an uplifting service. Don't just read the Bible for the encouragement. Let's see what God is trying to show us here. Verse 28. Then they said to him, What shall we do that, me, we, that we may work the works of God? Do and work. How common that the world asks these questions. What do I have to do to get to heaven? How much do I have to give? What religious ritual do I have to perform for God to accept me? Sadly, there are ministries that are still propagating this stuff. Give, do, work. You know, the shepherding movement. You know, only the pastors and the elders hear from God. Nobody else does. And they pretty much tell you where to live, what type of house to buy. They run your life. We don't have to go through the church for salvation. It's a personal relationship with our God. 
And the other extreme is to manufacture, in some instances, spirituality to prove that God is in it. Well, let's look at Jesus' response, verse 29. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. See how he turns it around. Jesus corrects them. It's God's work. God did the work. It was God's plan of salvation to send his son because he loved us so much into this world to die for our sins. That substitutionary death, that finished work on the cross is God's work. What's your responsibility and my responsibility is to look on that work that he performed and believe and trust in that work for salvation. It's the only work efficacious for salvation in, in, in getting the desired result. Now, this will offend the self-righteous. The self-righteous will look at this and go, I'm offended. A man of my stature and my pedigree, surely I can be a part of this salvation experience. I can work. I can do. No. God already did it. He made it fair for everyone. And all I can say personally is, thank you, God, that you made it fair. I didn't have to come from a, a, a particular bloodline. I didn't have to get a particular following to, to, to rah-rah me into the kingdom. I didn't have to have money that I, I didn't have. Right? God just did the work, and all I have to do is believe, and I'm saved. That's the beautiful thing about salvation. Verse 30. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the crowd's response is, well, if you don't want us to work and you just want us to believe, show us another sign. Well, didn't he just feed 5,000? Actually, it could have been 15,000 or more when you start counting women and children. Well, we want to see a sign, a big one. You know, show us something real big here. Like the manna from heaven. In Exodus 16, the children of Israel were hungry. They were out in the wilderness, and God rained this stuff from the sky. And they collected it up, and it had nutritious value. And every day they got this manna so that they would be satisfied but also that they, their nutritional needs would be met. That, that's a great miracle. And Jesus, you know, you kind of did something really neat with the, with the thing up on the mountaintop and multiplying the bread and the fish, but the manna thing was really impressive because it lasted a long time. In a sense, a bizarre battle of the breads going on here, right? Remember, God is not a genie in the bottle, and many make the mistake to assume that he performs tricks at our behest. It still happens today. God will not lower himself to perform for us when we demand it. Jesus is going to explain why their comparison is fallacious. Verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Why does he interject this Moses situation? Because especially a, a certain element of the people that he was talking to, revered Moses almost as high as God. And he wanted them to make sure it wasn't Moses that gave you the manna. It was God. He was working through Moses. Jesus was careful to keep them from man worship. He basically said, God sustained you physically with the manna, the bread from heaven. And this is really a play on words and phrases. He says to them, now God wants to sustain you spiritually Physically is good that you don't die physically, but more important is your soul, much more valuable than your body, which perishes and goes back into the ground. Okay? 
And that's only going to happen through the bread of life, which is Jesus, of course. Now, Jesus, I don't know how any group claiming to be Christian can read John's gospel and not see Christ's constant claim of deity, equating himself with God. And what I love about Christ redirecting them is, was that it wasn't about Moses. And today, it's still applicable. It isn't about us. It isn't about our ministry. And I'm really happy about that personally because the pressure's not on me. You know, if it was about me and, oh, Pastor Joe, it was a great message, you know, three Sundays in a row, it would be a nail biter. How do I get to the fourth one as good as the first three? It's not up to me. It's up to the Lord. I come up here, I'm relaxed. I don't look nervous, do I? It's up to the Lord. And if I really bomb, then pray for me and ask the Lord to fill me with some fresh spiritual insight. Right? No stress. We just need to be willing vessels. It isn't about us. It isn't about our ministry. It's about being willing to be used by God. And the last point that I want to make on this is it's actually funny how history colors things. If you read the scripture and you go back to the Old Testament, the people gave Moses a hard time a lot. They rebelled against them a lot. Many, many wanted to overthrow him. Now, thousands of years later, everyone's saying, hey, Moses was great. Isn't that amazing? We look at Abraham Lincoln as a great president. Back in the day that he lived, Uh, A lot of people hated him in the South and in the North for various reasons. So history changes things. And the Bible tells us that, uh, you know, the prophets, most of the prophets were killed by their own people. This is in the Old Testament in the Chronicles. Verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, the manna had to be continuously collected. Oh, God wasn't going to put it in a little package, vacuum sealed, right? He was going to rain it down. They were supposed to collect it and eat it. And if they tried to hoard it, he would allow it to breed worms and rot. So it was because he needed to teach the people that they needed to look to him every day for their sustenance. There's a a lesson in everything that God does. And he also says that you'll never thirst again. Remember the woman at the well. Had to keep coming to that well. She was thirsty. Jesus basically said, he's the source, he's the bread of life, and he's also the living water. But the people were still hung up on physical hunger, as we can see. The Lord says, or they say, Lord, give us this bread always. Because in that society, you know, You have to understand, and still in many of these societies and climates, without refrigeration, you know, you had your bread, and you had to make bread every day. Eventually, it would rot, so you'd have to make new bread. You know, you'd have to go to the well. They don't have plumbings like we do today. I mean, they didn't have the supermarkets to have bottled water that you could take with you on a trip. You know, I mean, I kind of like to go shopping once in a while, and I actually set out to get a few things, and I tell my wife, and I leave the house. 25 minutes later, she's calling me. Where are you? I'm still in aisle 10. You know what I'm saying? Because now I come home with four bags of stuff. Then I'm like, oh, I could get this, I could get that. wasn't like it back then. So the transition that Christ had to make was a, was a difficult transition. Hyper-focused on my physical needs to sustain me. I'm always hungry. I'm always thirsty. But you guys, I want to give you so much more. I want to give you eternal life. I want to give you fountains of living water. I want to satisfy your hunger, that void that you you go through the world looking for something to fill it. I want to fill that for you spiritually. The truth is, without Christ, we are dead spiritually. 
Now that's weird because some of us, I mean, if we don't know the Lord and we're really not reconciled to God, we have blood that runs through our veins. I'm alive. I could feel my heart beating, but we're dead spiritually. Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. That's deceptive. Don't take that into the judgment. Make your peace with the Lord. Trust him as your Lord and Savior, because he's the only one that's going to carry you into eternal life. And this is what he's promising them. Now, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. And we look at that in the English and go, oh, I am the bread of life. That's really nice. In the Greek, it's ego eimi ha artos tes zoes. And what that means is Jesus is saying, I am. And we keep covering this. Pause the bread of life. Exodus 3, I'm, he keeps referring to himself as divine. It's the name that God said who he was to Moses in Exodus 3. And we're going to see that a lot through this gospel. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The Lord's plea to them, I love you. Never had to beg, never had to lower himself, uh, but it's a different type of plea. I love you. you. You need to come to me. I want to give you so much. He's lovingly drawing them, yet holding them accountable for their decisions. He says, I said you have seen me, and you don't believe. The healings, the teachings, the miraculous feedings, what more did they want? And if that wasn't enough, I give you eternal life. I'll resurrect you on the last day. You'll get to enjoy the fruits of the millennial kingdom with me when I establish my kingdom on earth. And if that wasn't enough, I give you more. Right? We see that in the Old Testament. How many times did God say that? If that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. He says that to King David. What more would you want? I would give you anything that you asked for. Verse 36. We're going to be introduced to our third Greek word. He said, you've seen me, and yet you still don't believe. Now, that word is see in the English. Third Greek word, horao. Blepo is surface, ido is deeper, horao is yet deeper. That word means in the Greek that it's to stare at something remarkable, to discern clearly. I think that the Lord was often blown away by the hard hearts of the people. He said, Horao, you look at me, and if he is remarkable. Now, we couldn't say that. We would say, well, you're awfully prideful. If I stood here and said, look, I'm remarkable. No, no. But if you're God, you truly are remarkable. You know, d- divine d- deity taking the form of a man and coming to the earth. That's remarkable. And you still don't believe. I would just say this. Disbelief in spite of the evidence. If you're here this morning and you've heard the word for years, maybe you've been coming to this church for a while, what's holding you up? Don't gamble with your eternal security. Now, how foolish would it be if, if you know, at the age of like 65, you, know, you saved up money for your retirement, you saved up money for your kids and your grandkids, and, and everybody gets a little something because you were diligent to save because you love your family. Now, how ridiculous would it be if you took all that money and just went to Atlantic City and put it all on black? Who would do that? That would be absurd. I submit to you today, don't gamble with your eternal security. We're so concerned about physical things in life, you know, our pensions, our retirement, our this or that. We so plan for another day that we might not even have. 
But so many don't plan for where they're going to spend eternity. I say this at funerals. You go on, on, on vacation, you take luggage. If you're going on vacation for three weeks, unless you're planning on buying everything new, you take luggage with you. Who doesn't prepare for that? But why do so many not prepare for the, their eternal security? Right? We, we read this, we, we stare at something remarkable, we see the word, it has life, it, it moves us. And do we just leave Sunday afternoon and say, oh, that was really neat. You know, I'm going to go rake the leaves today. Consider it. He is remarkable. He's your God and he loves you. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You see this back and forth between God's sovereignty. The Father draws. Actually, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we read the scripture, all three of them, and they're one God, they all draw us. The Father draws us, the Holy Spirit is convicts us and convinces us that we need him. And Jesus, of course, tried to reconcile while he was on the earth. So, you know, one thing about Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, love us so much that they're always trying to, to pull us in, you know. Now, I am going to talk to you about the repetition in this chapter, which is unusual compared to a lot of other chapters. He had to keep bringing this stuff up. Remember, we live in the dispensation of grace. If you've been a Christian for a while, you understand resurrection. You see at the end of, of Matthew when you know, he, Jesus is raised from the dead and a lot of the saints in Jerusalem come out of their graves. We're used to this resurrection stuff. To them, it was a new concept. He really wanted them to understand it. It was in the Old Testament, but it was kind of veiled. They didn't understand it fully. So put yourself in, the, in the, this position here. Helps us understand it a little bit more. I tallied some things up. Number one, Jesus speaks or uh, speaks outright or implied a few things. Number one, eternal life. I counted it up. In this chapter alone, 10 times speaks about eternal life. Resurrection, he speaks about five times. To be drawn by the Father and Christ not losing those that are drawn, he speaks about five times. It's a lot. This gets better. Our responsibility. In a relationship, right, if it's a one-way relationship, Relationship doesn't last long, does it? Okay? In this relationship between us and God, we need to believe. We need to come to him. We need to lay down our will and trust him with our lives. Our responsibility commands to believe, to come, and to abide, which are all acts of free will, a whopping 14 times in this chapter alone. Why so much repetition? Because as human beings, we're dense. You know? As my Italian grandmother would say, malatesta. She said some other things, but I can't repeat it. <laughs> but the bottom line is that uh, he loves us that much. I mean, this chapter is all about how much God loves us. When, when Charles Spurgeon was asked about how to reconcile divine sovereignty and man's free will, he said, I never try to reconcile friends because they go together. Right? So there's a relationship there. Verse 40, he says this. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, what are we coming to? Another Greek word. Okay, again, in the English, it's see, but we have our fourth Greek word here, and that's theoreo, where we get the word theorize from. 
This word means to intensively discern, continued inspection, and experiential. So this is not just mental assent. We see the sun, we theorize, we, we discern this, we experience, we put some time in with him. Not just mental assent. See, the demons believe that Jesus is the son of God, but they're not going to heaven. They're not saved. And I submit to you that the demons probably know a lot more about the word than we do. They have to. They were eventually going to fight that epic battle and lose. So they're trying to get as much information as they can. I'm sure they have the whole thing memorized. But they're not saved. Oh, yeah, I heard oh, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, I saw a cross on the building. That doesn't get us into heaven, right? It's a, a belief and a trust and an abiding with him. And John 15 and 14 are going to be awesome when we cover that. Verse 41. The Jews then murmured against him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? It's amazing how this group turns on the Lord. And I love this because you can see how real it is. If this was contrived, it would be storybook, picture perfect. Well, it's not that way. You can look in society and see a lot of things in here that have similarities. This group, they go from groupie-type followers, now all of a sudden they're critics. They wanted to follow him. They went all the way to Capernaum to follow him because of the miracles he did. Now they're being critical of him. You can see that in, in a cross-section of any society. Uh, you, any, on any given day, you can talk to people about the Lord, and some will be very interested. Some will be hostile. Some will be offended when you start talking about sin. And you can see this morphing, this changing in the conversation. This is a turning point, truly, in this conversation here. Now, next Sunday, he challenges them even more, and he loses many of his followers. And that's what I love about the Lord. When you really study Christianity, it's not a wimpy faith. If we truly are in it for the long haul, we're challenged, we're convicted, we're asked to step up by the Lord, you know, step up to the plate and grow and mature, not just to stay in one state. 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written by, in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Now, he quotes a scripture. We find this both in uh, Isaiah 54 and Jeremiah 31. They shall all, bar none, be taught by God. Remember, it indicates a willingness on the hearer to hear as he teaches these things. Some will tell you in, in certain forms of Christianity that God plays favorites and only draws some. Well, not according to this. Just by his word. Just as he speaks, the oracles of God, as we read them, the Bible tells us, we see this in Romans 10, 17, and we covered it in John 5, 24. Just by reading his word and hearing his word, something is happening. He's, he's trying to get our attention through his words. And a good way to see it is that God reaches out his hand. It's already, it's already, he's already done his work. Christ already died for our sins. But we have to reach back and, and take a hold of that hand. And, and we can walk with him the rest of the days of our life. I love that about him. 
If you're wondering if the Father is drawing you while you're sitting there quietly, I can't read what's going on behind your brain, um, and you're thinking about it, you're considering it, you're maybe wrestling with some of these concepts. Hey, I've never heard this before. Um, be, be rest assured that through his word, he is drawing you. But I would say this, don't resist that. Don't resist his love for you. Many have done that, and we see that in the scripture. But don't do that. Verse 46, this continual theme of coming from heaven, coming from being with the Father, and they scoffed at Jesus. Why? Because they saw him grow up in Nazareth. Well, he was part of a human family, yes, but they missed the scriptures in the Old Testament that spoke about the incarnation and the virgin birth. Okay, so you saw him from a little boy grow up. Did he ever do anything wrong? No, because he never sinned. Uh, but take that to the next level and look at those Old Testament prophecies. It's amazing how the Jews did it, and Christians can do it today. I mean, we can go through the entire Bible, but we can interject what we want into our lifestyle and ignore certain point, portions of the Scripture. Don't we do that? I mean, some pick a church that way. You know, this is my lifestyle. I don't want anybody asking me any questions. So I'm going to find a church that caters to that lifestyle. No, we should be looking for the truth. And the Jewish people back then, again, I say that we're just as guilty 2,000 years later. We do the same thing. We have to take the totality of the scripture, not just our favorite parts. That's why we try to go through the entire Bible verse by verse, because then it eliminates all these pet peeves and these denominational fightings and bickerings going through the entire word. Jesus said that he came from heaven or came from the Father nine times. Again, why so much repetition? Because he loves us. I can tell you in my life personally, you know, God was drawing me while I was in my 20s, uh, maybe even earlier, and he would keep putting people in my life. And there were other parts of my life, uh, my flesh, like these guys that had a strong tug on me, and I was very interested in the word. I really wanted this Jesus, but there was also a competing interest from my heart, which was part of my lifestyle. And it, it took years for me to finally just, just stop running from him and accept him as my Lord and Savior. 47. Last verse for today. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Again, some will come up to receive the Lord and say, I don't feel any different. Be careful with your feelings. He who trusts in Jesus, he who believes in him and his finished work on the cross has. It's a present tense verb. At this moment, you have eternal life. So at any, any time from now until you pass, you are promised that entrance into the kingdom, whether you feel like it or not. Remember, we still have emotions. We still have a brain that, that changes chemicals and this and that. We still get upset. We still get our feelings hurt. We get depressed. Sometimes when the winter comes and it's don't see the sun anymore, get seasonal affective disorder. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means in this life we have our ups and downs. He who believes in me has eternal life. What did we see? The insufficiency of the manna. That's what the people were banking on. The rabbis actually taught, there was folklore that said when the Messiah came, he would duplicate the miracle of the manna. Now there was folklore, there was tradition, and then there was scripture. It's not, it's not represented in scripture. The manna, even though it was miraculous, was insufficient to keep the children of Israel from physical death. If one person went on a hunger strike and refused to collect it for a certain amount of weeks, they probably would die from malnutrition. 
So, you know, that manna, taking it one day, two days a week, was not going to keep them alive physically because they died. Two, it wasn't going to give them eternal life. So my question to you is, are you trusting in the manna of the world, or are you trusting in the bread, the true bread from heaven? What does the world have to offer? How much spiritual junk food is there out there? Is our hunger and our thirst deep down inside being satiated by the right things? You know, before I was a Christian, new stuff made me happy because it was new. <laughs> a new car, a new this, a new that. It's new, a new stereo set. After a while, I get bored with it because it didn't, it didn't satisfy my hunger. When I became a Christian, I realized all those years what I was really looking for, and I try to dump stuff into the, into the void from the world and it didn't do anything for me. Jesus rightly says he is the true bread from heaven. He satisfies us spiritually. We will never hunger again. We will never thirst again. And we will never keep trying to take stuff and throw it into that void of what's missing in our life. If I can use the Greek for see a few more times, let's look at the steps towards salvation. Number one, we see who Jesus is. All of us have seen billboards, we've seen crosses on buildings, we've seen scriptures at uh, sports events, we've, we've heard people, you know, and we say, okay, that's Jesus. Yeah, I heard about Jesus. Second thing, considering who Jesus is, to take a, take a deeper look at Jesus. Look past the glamour, look past the magazine articles, look past the quotes and say, did Jesus really say that? What does the Bible say about Jesus? Now we're going deeper. The third point is to investigate what impact, if any, Jesus will have on my life. Now it's personal. Now we move from a cursory glance to something a little bit more. Now we say, well, how does it affect me? Are those promises true? I need to investigate that. Does he really promise these things? And can he really make good on these things? I need to know. And four, after that investigation, we take the facts together and we make a decision about our eternal life. And by that point, turning back and rejecting him and never turning to him again, it was not going to get us eternal life. Because it's not that God's being mean. It's not that he's going to send anybody to hell because he's, he's spurned. It's that sinful people cannot be in his presence. Even Elijah, even Moses, he would show them a part of his glory. They could not look at his full glory and live. They would be toast. Sinful people and a holy God is incompatible. They don't mix. So the only way to get into his presence for eternity is for the sin issue to be dealt with. It's the elephant in the room, right, that the world doesn't want to talk to, that big pink elephant. That's the thing that's hindering us from eternal fellowship with the Lord. And as Jesus took care of that on the cross, so I just want to ask you one last time, are you hungry? And I don't mean because you had breakfast at six o'clock. Are you hungry? If you've been around for a while, is the world satisfying that hunger? I think if we're honest with ourselves, the answer is no. Are you thirsty? When I'm up here, I have to keep drinking this two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen because I get dry quickly. But that's not what I'm talking about. Just as our physical body can be dry and needs to be hydrated, our spirit needs to be hydrated with that living water. 
new stuff, new relationships, new marriage, that's not going to do it. Some of you have to learn the hard way. I did for years. The only thing to satisfy you is the bread of life. He who partakes of me will never hunger again. He who drinks from this well that I offer will never again thirst. Let's pray.